Hi, I'm Jamar McNeil. I'm Anne-Marie Medawake. And I'm Candy Palmiter from the Mi'kmaq Nation. We are coming to you today from the unceded territory of the Mississauga of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. Today on From Where We Stand, conversations on race and mental health, we are looking at men's mental health, more specifically men within the BIPOC community. And that notion that of masculinity that prevents men from expressing their emotions that might be exacerbated in BIPOC communities. You know, men need help. <laughs> men need help. And you know what's, <laughs> what's always, and as a man, I say that we need help. Um, and I say that because... When I talk to my female friends, I notice that women probably talk about their feelings with each other more than men do. Like, you'll hear women talk about, oh, well, are you upset about that? How did that make you feel? And, like, men don't, we don't even talk to each other about that. So I don't know where we get the support about what's going on with our mental health because we're just not cultured that way. And I mean, I don't want to speak for every man, but I, I will know that many of the men around me, we're just not uh, taught to speak to each other in that way. It's so true. You hear Oprah talk about Gail as the therapist she never needed, right? Because she had that support <laughs> all her life. And I know my father, um, he's the kind of guy that even if he had a broken leg, he would contemplate whether he should see a doctor. Mm. You know, like this was just a, a, yeah. a, a tough dude that felt like uh, you don't bother anybody with your with your little problems, and that's how he would see them as little problems when they were in fact massive problems. And I, I said all his life, he died at eighty seven. He was fifty one years sober. He managed to to take care of that on his own, and he did that on his own. He didn't go through a twelve step program. Um, but all his life, I thought if if my father could have had somebody to talk to, a therapist to talk to from a young age because his trauma started very, very young. What a different life he could have led. I used to find him sitting on the beach for hours just watching the ocean. And I asked him once, um, you know, I follow you sometimes, Daddy, and I know you just sit there and watch the ocean. What are you doing? And he said, I sit there and I try to deal with what my life has been. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I think about the men in my community, specifically my father, and you know, you know what his how how his life could have been different had he had some maybe some mental health support. But you know, for for a Jamaican man, like mental health support is not even part of the socialization culture. It's it's not even part of the. It's not it's not a thing, you know, and that just yeah. leads to all types of really really um, harmful uh, patterns. Yeah, not a thing, or it's not a thing that's discussed. My dad is yeah. Sri Lankan, and when we would have conversations around uh, mental health, anxiety, depression, he would say, I mean, even culturally, add a cultural layer on top of that, and he would say, well, we don't have any of that in our family. And he couldn't even say the words depression or anxiety. There's none of that in our family. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we talk about being stoic, this idea that somehow being stoic means you're strong, and if you're strong, that's your identity as a man, and that means you're not asking for help or talking about things. But when you internalize that stuff where we see the outcomes of that is in statistics, right? 75% of suicide in Canada are men, men have higher rates of addiction than women. Then look at that in the Indigenous community where the suicide rates for men are double that of the Canadian national average. Staggering. <laughs> Staggering. Men need help. And for a long time, men are not even able to admit or speak about the help that they need. And we're going to have some of those conversations here today. Uh, on the topic of help, it is important to know that these podcasts 
are a form of discussion, but not a form of medical treatment. And they shouldn't be seen as a substitution for therapy or medication. So if you, someone you know, or yourself, if you're struggling with mental health, please consult with a mental health provider and a professional. So let's get right into it. We'll hear from Shamar Barnett on what it's like to grow up in one of Toronto's most vibrant, but also most violent neighborhoods. Stay right here. So if you lived in Toronto, uh, it's most likely you've heard of Jane and Finch, uh, the neighborhood in the GTA known mostly for its high crime rate, gun violence, large um, black population. Our next guest grew up in the area and describes it as living in a war zone. Here to tell us some more of those stories that shaped him and his mental health is Shamar Barnett. Welcome to the show, Shamar. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, Shamar and Jamar link up. Exactly. I was saying this must be meant to be. I feel super comfortable. Yes, the man's them link up on the podcast. Yeah. I, I like you already. I love your name. <laughs> Appreciate it, bro. Uh, and, and, you know, like I said in the beginning of, of this segment, you know, I, I'm newer to Toronto. I've been here for a couple of years now, about three years. But I mean, everyone knows when you, you know, when you talk about the ends, you're talking about Jane and Finch. Um, you're talking about this, the spot where everything pops off. But um, for those who haven't experienced it, you know, if you're just saying it in pop culture, it might just sound like, you know, the the cool or tough place to grow up. But what is it really like to grow up in Jane and Finch? Yeah, more or less what you said. Um, But truthfully, growing up in Jane and Finch is a super unique experience. Um, One that I'll cherish forever because it definitely shaped who I am. Um, As a kid, you know, there's a, there's a super community vibe there. Like everyone knows everyone. And especially as a kid, you've probably been babysat by your neighbor before. And of course we have the the, the candy lady um, selling um, things like that. But as you've alluded to before, it definitely has its um, detrimental nuances and um, arguably exposes kids to things they shouldn't be exposed to at a very um, early and tender stage in their life. So yeah, um, everything you said really, it's it's a war zone, it's the ends, it's it's everything really. Do you remember being exposed to those um those not so nice elements at a young age? Yeah, most definitely, because as a kid you 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 see things right before your face and despite that community vibe that that I mentioned earlier there's definitely a tension in the air that you could feel alongside that um and it's kind of an unspoken tension and one that you kind of have to you know they say some things are caught not taught so you kind of find yourself doing these things and then you're like oh that's what I saw as a kid it all makes mm-hmm. sense now um and I kind of want to cite my mentor, Dwayne Brown here, because he has a an article. And in the article, he says, emotional intelligence is life and death where I'm from. So, you know, before you even know it, and definitely in my case, I've had to use that emotional intelligence to kind of navigate around those situations and not get caught up in them. Did you realize you were using that emotional intelligence? Um at the time, or this is always after your mentor kind of uh, revealed it to you, did you understand what you were doing? No, not at all, actually, because truthfully, um, I have friends who have been killed and friends who have been on like both sides of the gun. And I just made the decision that I didn't want to do that. So at the time, no, 
it wasn't it wasn't deliberately okay i'm gonna apply my emotional intelligence to to this um situation but i definitely went through a process where i had to um think about what i was going through and why and i had to kind of separate myself from that yeah i love that you said that because you know sometimes when we talk about our inner city neighborhoods and just people coping with trauma we'd like to think that everyone is equipped, just like you just said you are. We'd like to think that everyone has the emotional intelligence or maybe can make that discernment on which side of the gun, you know, you know, you don't want to be on any side of the gun, but you hopefully don't want to be on the, uh, the aggressor side. But, you know, we're all learning. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, if you're in the learning process, it, it, you can't expect everyone to be perfect. And especially in these neighborhoods that are just as imperfect as possible or as can be. You know, it, it it causes a lot of problems. So um, I want you to talk about the one of the big um, turning points in your life um, that where you were faced with gun violence um, head on. Can you tell us about the time when you lost your friend? Yeah, most definitely. And going back to when I said growing up in Jaden Finch is a is a um, valuable experience that I cherish forever um, because it shaped me. That is largely one of the experiences in 2013, just losing two of my friends, Oshie and Kwame. Um, that was, again, a situation where I was like 12 years old, exposed to gun violence way earlier than, or, you know, you should never be exposed to that, but at a very early stage where it exceeded my ability to cope. So it was traumatic. Um, it's definitely left scars on me and my whole community, but Ever, I could say like ever since 2013, it's it's kind of been like a downward cycle for us. But now um, things are definitely getting better, both in the community and in our life, like as a whole, because people prioritize that mental health and, you know, therapy is not so taboo anymore. So healing is taking place. But there was definitely a very, very dark period beginning in like 2013. Shamar, could you, you know, once again, a lot of people know about these concepts and they know about gun violence, but they don't understand how the trauma manifests. Like once a youth is exposed to a murder, yeah, what happens, if you don't mind telling us, what happens to you like on a daily basis, mentally, physically? What, what goes on after that for you? Honestly, a lot. So one thing you, you definitely battle is like, what's the difference between me and my friend? You know, we eat off the same plates. We played at the same parks. That could have been me. So, you know, you start seeing yourself in that body bag. Also, you know, you, you definitely feel the, the, the tension in the community rising again. The, your, your surroundings, like what was once, you know, the park, that park, which was like 100 meters from your house, that walk turns into like a marathon, you know, because wherever you're trying to go, you're really trying to just make it there and back safely. But it seems like it's, it's a journey. Um, everything changes when people around you essentially start dying because then, you know, you, you become essentially what you see. Like we fall victim to this idea that we are our um, environment, but that couldn't be further from the truth because it's our thoughts that are products of our environment and not actually us. Wow. You sound like you've gone through some, some, uh, some, some, th some therapy. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. Um, um, another traumatic uh, incident was, uh, seeing your own brother being handcuffed, uh, unjustly. Um, that's just another layer of trauma as well that, that we all as black men, 
are exposed to. Can you explain to people what that's like, that, that the helpless feeling of seeing someone innocent being treated that way? Um, yeah, and that also contributes to the fear of your environment because on the other hand of people trying to um, get you, there's police also on, like with the same rhetoric. So going back to that situation, seeing my brother being unjustly handcuffed, like I was literally, I, I was unfortunate enough to not be in that situation because I made it home 10 minutes earlier. And that goes back to the nuance of your journey being a, like a marathon. So literally I get home like 10 minutes earlier. I'm with my, my mom Dukes. I'm looking outside because mm. my mom is kind of, you know, um, her senses are heightened just being in that neighborhood, very paranoid. She's like, you know, she's always on the ball. She wanted us to be home. So I respected it. Um, mm. I was there. Um, so now we're looking out for my brother. Cause you know, I'm just essentially trying to calm my mom down. Like, you know, just chill out. He's, he'll be home soon. So we, now we, we look outside and now we have a reason to be so anxious. We literally see um, my brother walking home with a friend and they're just approached like very, in a very bizarre manner by the police. Um, and you can't really tell what's going on, but you can tell that it's nothing positive. And then mm. within like 10 seconds, boom, these guys are on the fence. And, you know, you could imagine what my mother's reaction was. And I'm very confused. Obviously, when you're in these situations, it's unfortunate, but you're young, but you're you're forced to be like the man or like the head and the leader. So so you have to hold it down. So that's essentially what I'm trying to do, trying to calm down the situation. But I know like something is not right. So, mm. you know, you see that and then, yeah, you're, you're again provided with this sense of like, it's not safe. And then after talking to my brother, um, like after that happened, spoke with my brother and he says that the police said, um, this is a red zone, so we can um, arrest you or like essentially harass you or, or take any measures that we deem necessary to, to calm down a situation. So essentially, you know, you don't even have rights. So, no, yeah, the, the, the old stop and frisk, right? Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and you know, um, that again just provides you with the, the feeling that your environment is not safe. These people can do whatever they want on both ends of the stick. So... So, so people listening, I mean, just think about this existence, you know, you're, you're living in fear of perceived enemies in terms of, you know, gang members, people with guns, you know, people breaking the law who may take your life, but then also the people who are supposed to protect your life are also <laughs> an enemy, oddly supposed to be your, your, uh, you know, your ally, but an enemy as well. So you're caught in this middle of, like you said, Shamar war zone. Exactly. So you got to protect yourself type stuff. Man, I remember growing up, I saw so many people get handcuffed for like shoplifting and that they didn't actually do that when I when I'd walk through grocery stores or like the drugstore or whatever, I'd actually hold out my my products like this. I'd walk through the store like this just so I wouldn't be accused of stealing. That's not right. And, you know, I kind of relate to that because sometimes I'd be in a store and I, I'd I don't know if I'm right or not, but, you know, I, I, I get the sense that I get the inclination that someone might be following me and I'm forced to project my voice louder and show people like, yo, I'm articulate and, you know, I'm, I'm a regular person. I'm I'm not doing anything so that they essentially take their attention away from me. When I go into stores, I all, I feel guilty. Yeah, yeah. No joke. I literally walk in the store and I feel like I stole something. Even if I didn't steal anything, I feel like, damn, I, you ever see did I steal Jake? something? <laughs> yeah, you ever see the Jake's and then you're like driving. You ever see the police and you're driving and you're just like, you know, like 
you just you feel like you've done something. I didn't even do anything wrong, but I feel like I'm going to get pulled over. Um, you know, so there's another idea that I I got from my mentor, and he says that in these situations, we're criminalized by the color of our skin, and yeah. unfortunately, we have to play the professional. Although these people are the trained professionals that are um actually pre- um prepped to interact with us, we have to unfortunately play the professional in order to exit these situations um safely just dr joseph smith told me that and when he told me that i had like a light bulb moment so that that's like something that's coming to mind as we have this discussion very profound because you know you would think a lot of the times the burden of proof is on us to prove that we're not the person when you're supposed to prove you're supposed to show me that i did something wrong i'm not supposed to show you i didn't do nothing wrong exactly it's like you're guilty uh, already. Yeah, yeah. I, I, bro, I get it. I, I get it. And, you know, what we're trying to tell folks is, you know, in exposing these stories and experiences that, you know, there is a toll on the mental health, just just getting up and leaving your house, even when it's not the most active day, it's it's active in your mind. Um, and and you, you've been working to cope with this trauma. As you said, you've been uh, talking to a therapist. Can you tell us about um, the therapy? Are you still doing therapy? Um, actually, not anymore. I had the opportunity to successfully go through Generation Chosen's Remedy program. And a little bit about that is we service our community by offering free therapy to BIPOC youth. So mm. that's that's. I just wanted to, to touch on that. Anyone that is watching this that feels that they need that support in any way, Generation Chosen offers free therapy to to our community. Um so I had the opportunity to take advantage of that and it was very profound actually. Um learned a lot about myself and you know a lot I, I was essentially um provided with a toolbox that helps me navigate life. It's a very important toolbox when you're dealing with all these uh these forces on either side of you. And you know we've also been talking about the fact that in our community Therapy is still kind of uh, taboo, <laughs> you know. It's yeah. it's not really seen as something that uh that that you know uh, your parents are from Jamaica as well as mine, you know. Yeah, it's called a madman. No, oh, him gone mad. Him gone. Him gone. A therapist. Him not. Him head gone. It's like right. no, my head is not gone. I I need help. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um. So that's another layer you have to break through as well. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but in communities like ours, mental health is sort of a luxury because everyone's like stuck on survival mode. You know, everyone's just mostly living paycheck to paycheck and, you know, everyone's so frantic. So you could imagine the type of surroundings you're in. So to to um even have the opportunity to think about leisure sometimes, that's a luxury. And mental health, unfortunately, um falls in that category. Well, historically, but we're going to we're going to change that stigma. You know, because mental health is something that applies to all of us and something that should be prioritized. Shamar, you're a, you're a shining star for, for Toronto, uh, Jane and Finch specifically, and, and you're also a, a budding leader. And I really, really applaud the work that you're doing and continuing to do for yourself and for your community. Well, listen, God go with you, my brother, and, um, you know, be well. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you were able to share your, your, uh, your stories with us and uh, share your journey. It's uh, very valuable. To, to me personally and to everyone listening. I appreciate you for having me. And I hope that this message touches someone, you know? That was like just such an incredible conversation, Jamar. Yeah. When you said about how you always think 
Like you you feel guilty even when you haven't done anything. I do a whole bit about that, about like you're in, you're in class and you find out that the milk money got stolen and your first thought is they're going to catch me. And like you, <laughs> you haven't taken it, but like, you're just so sure that they're going to catch you for it anyway. And, and, and I've often like looked at classmates at, on the other side of the track and thought, gee, I wonder what it's like to like, hear something like the milk money's missing and it doesn't, it doesn't even like register for you it just goes by to this day to this day when i walk into certain stores i make sure i have the items in clear view on either side of me so when the eye in the sky is looking at me on the camera there is because the last thing i want to do is to be be the guy on the radio getting handcuffed and thrown up against the wall for shoplifting which i've done before which i've been and get publicized for you know perceivably stealing something that i didn't steal um, it's one of it's one of my so so to this day I feel guilty just walking into stores certain stores, you know it's it's one of those things that people um those traumas you know you hold on your yeah. mental state yeah you know I didn't come from Jane and Finch but I came from the inner city as well uh, and it the nuance of growing up in in a black neighborhood in the inner city is just it has to be you know it has to be processed differently than just those are bad people poor people undesirables. So I really appreciate um, hearing Shamar tell his story and, and guide us through the nuances of what it's like to grow up in those neighborhoods because I relate to it and, and people need to hear that. Jamar, what I pulled from that conversation and what I was thinking about and will keep thinking about for a few days is that uh, that idea of being on a war zone about how you are both defending yourself and how he expressed that you have to be the professional in that situation about how you have to be the one to... Um, you have to be the one to be the professional. I just, I thought that was, it was a really good insight for people who might not understand. And your story, I can relate to that story of feeling like, uh, feeling like you are, have done wrong. Like every time I walk through a store and the security tag goes off because something is my bag, I fight myself to not want to take everything out of my coat and everything out of my purse and be like, look, I didn't take it. You just left the tag on. And, you know, people, we laugh about that story, but at the same time, there's a lot about it that's not funny and a lot about how that plays into how you feel about yourself, how you conduct yourself, what you feel like you're worthy. And Candy, you've talked about this before about am I enough? And so I so appreciate him sharing not only his insights about past and present, uh, but about how he process the, processes them to continue to go forward. And your conversation too, Jamar. Thanks for sharing that. Of course. Of course. And as kids, we learn that we're supposed to be learning from our law enforcement professionals like learning from them you know the police comes into the classroom and you know the police officer whatever is your friend and what have you what have you but then you get to an age where you realize that oh we're not friends anymore that (laughs) with friends like that who needs enemies right 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 but that was a very great conversation from handling stresses in your neighborhood to managing family expectations inside your home Varun joshi joins us next Our next guest grew up in a family where academics and good grades in school were considered the benchmark for success. But the pressures of living up to those expectations eventually caught up with him, sending him into depression and anxiety. Here to tell us more on how he coped with it is Varun Joshi. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. I want to start by asking you about your younger days. You grew up in an environment where academics, oh man, I get this. I have South Asian parents where academics and the grades you got in school were very important, not just for you, but for the family. 
I mean, the family's reputation was on the line. Talk to us about some of the pressures you faced through those years. Absolutely. And like, I just wanted to put a bit of context to where those kind of pressures come from. Um, I was born in Toronto and I'm raised in Brampton since 2000. Uh, I like to joke about being an OG in the Brampton community, but I come from a Hindu Punjabi Brahmin family where I grew up in a vegetarian household where a lot of different uh, values were instilled. And at first they might seem uh, harmless, but over time they end up chipping away and uh, just affecting, can affect any individual's life in various ways as, as they did with mine. So just growing up, it was, I was told that if I just worked really hard and got the grades that uh, my parents wanted or grades that for my goals, the, you know, the always A's, 90s, whatever it might be, that uh, I'm set, right. you know, it results in a, in a good job. It results in uh, happiness, all that stuff. And uh, the problem with that was... Yeah, if you wanted to achieve, those were the things you had to do. Absolutely. But the problem with that was it was a constant... Uh, first of all, it just it wasn't true in the world. Like the, the parents didn't know any better. But at the same time, because they, they... That whole mentality comes from a place where to them in India, that's kind of what happened. If you had the good grades, if you, if you had all of that, you were usually a little bit more set than if not. And they grew up around seeing poverty. So they were in that kind of survival situation where they thought if we could just convince the kids to do this, will be good. They won't have to work seven days a week like us. They won't have to, because I, along with academics, it was also told in me that I should be helping out the folks in all of their endeavors. You get those grades, you listen to your parents, you help out whenever they ask you, which is more of a tell as opposed to ask, and uh, you you be a good son. I wanted to ask you about the about some of those things that you talked about, how it would chip away at you, some of those expectations yeah. that would chip away at you. Absolutely. It was made very clear to you, and, and keeping in the context that you were a young man, mm-hmm. uh, consuming alcohol or having a girlfriend, these mm-hmm. are things that, you know, Canadian teenagers do. Yeah. Uh, those were distractions, and that you had to stay away from them. What did that do to you? It turned me very, very antisocial. It being told that I should be staying away from women because they'll be entrapping me. I should be looking for only friends that are uh, vegetarian or uh, uh, specifically Hindu. It just, it, it made it difficult for me because like Brampton's a pretty diverse place when going into high school and whatnot. I, it made me not want to like, thank God I still have some friends that stuck around, but it just, I noticed that it'd be people reaching out to me as opposed to me reaching out to them. And it resulted in uh, any decision to want to do something different um, to be taken back with a lot, a lot of resistance. I wanted to go to Ottawa for my undergraduate, which is five hours away from home. A huge, uh, just storm of, uh, oh, you're going to disappoint us by being away from us here. You don't love us. All these different, it's, unless you're like right in front of the family, in a, in a joint family situation and in a, in a very imaginized fantasy kind of way, it's, there's a lot of manipulation and guilting behind that. When did you start to notice that your mental health, that all of these pressures, that all these expectations, that all of this weight was starting to take a toll? Grade 10. I uh, was always bad at math. And this one particular year, I, I got uh, an 89 after working really hard. And my overall average was an 80. It was a 79.5. And my mom told me she wasn't pleased. And the joy it took away from me, I didn't speak to her for almost two months. And hmm. there was a, a lot of drama in the house regarding that. But I'm like, I worked very, very hard towards this. This was one of my biggest accomplishments at that time. For you to not be proud of me was was almost like the end of the world. Like, I mean, it was a bit of a breaking point in terms of realizing their goals aren't sustainable. On top of, I, I need to look to other places, to other avenues for validation. I need to look elsewhere for value in myself. And that's where kind of I realized I started having anxiety over, uh, 
other people's ex- anyone's expectations of me, notions of I'm not worthy or anything like that, where a lot of core issues regarding depression. Um, that's where I'd say a problem. That that's probably my earliest memory of it. Farine, you talked about the there was a lot of expectations discussed, right, and the things mm-hmm. that you should be doing and and what you needed to do. Was mental health ever discussed? Absolutely not. Mental health has been tucked away in our family for even though everyone has some sort of mental health issue. Um, like there's no, not even a term for mental health in Punjabi. Um, the closest thing is something like, no, I, I can't even, I, I, there's, there's no equivalent word in the English language for depression and notions of people that have mental illness. It's like, uh, we refer to them as a term boggle, which is, is pretty much just, they're, they're crazy, not normal, dangerous. And, uh, it, yeah, mental health is not a, the notion of my parents saying they can, I can talk to them about whatever they would say that, but then it's not talking to them so that they can listen and sometimes just let someone vent. It'd be more, okay, so here's how we're going to provide you a solution. And if you don't follow the solution, well, then you're just not listening hard enough. What was the solution? <sighs> try harder. <laughs> um, it'd be things like try harder. It'd be turn to religion, pray more, um, which... <laughs> I identify as Hindu right now. I'm very religious, but the way I practice my religion is very different from my, how my parents practice theirs. And, but to them, it's like, just if you sit down in front of a, a prayer cabinet and just meditate, your problems will go away. Uh, if I just try hard enough and be positive, it'll go away. And it's like the term be positive is probably one of the most infuriating things you could say to anyone. <laughs> Yeah. Especially because you're doing all the things everybody says, right? You're trying to be respectful. You go to your parents, you ask for help, you follow through on the, you try, you know, you, when you're anxious, when you are depressed, the, the try is only going to get you so far. Sometimes you can't try. That's one of the, that's one of the handcuffs of depression. And then when you're, what did that do to you when you've tried all of their options and you've tried to pray and then you still weren't feeling better? The depression is still there. The anxiety is still there. I believe that's one of the reasons I decided I wanted to go to Ottawa for my undergraduate where I'm an Ottawa Senators fan and I, and I wanted to have like just <laughs> uh, apologies to anyone uh, who's a Leafs fan. Uh, but I, I just, I, I needed to get or away Habs from fan. or uh, especially considering I'm born and raised in the GTA, but uh, <laughs> I just, I needed to get away also because I, I wanted to experience what it was like to just have to kind of make it on my own. And the things I learned independently in Ottawa, I could not have learned in a home setting, but it was also, I needed, to have, I needed a bit of breathing space. I don't know how to articulate it, but just breathe without a constant eye over my shoulder. In university, what was your mental health like, especially around the time you were graduating? <sighs> so yeah, universities, when I, when I first realized, I, that's where the term like mental health came, became aware to me. I uh, started getting help for being suicidal in 2014 after doing a uh, legal placement at a criminal defense firm. My background's in criminology and uh, having to defend a uh, sex offender, just it rubbed me in a wrong way. And on my way home, I went straight to campus to the docs. And I'm like, docs, I don't, I, I don't know what's up, but I just, I don't feel like being here. I, something's just very wrong. And uh, that's when I got started on medication and I started speaking to a counselor and um, it was actually pretty nice because for most of the university, I had depression affecting things, uh, whether it's not going to class or or just poor eating habits or whatever it might be. Um, but I never had any issues with alcohol or anything like that prior to um, 2015. And I started uni in 2011 and um, it, stuff was going pretty well. And I uh, wanted to go to grad school. So I decided to come back for a fifth year 
do an extra degree that would only take me one year because of course credits. And prior to starting that, I was in a car collision and uh, I had a concussion. I couldn't deal with the pain of a concussion. It's by far, after COVID, the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life. And that's where- Yeah, I've been there. That, that's where the I al- would agree with that. That's where the alcohol started, where I just, I needed to not be in pain. So I just drink. And eventually it caught up to me. I'd be doing things that I wasn't proud of. And uh, thankfully I was able to c- come to that self-realization and uh, was doing group therapy, did more extensive therapy. I had a- um, a caseworker and all that. And going through that, I was able to explore a lot of different other things. Um, I came to realize that during a trip to India in 2010, I, uh, I didn't, I didn't know about, I didn't know the terminology for this. I didn't even know this was a thing, but I, turns out I found out that I was actually assaulted in India. And it was a, it was a weird situation where I had started to kind of pull all these pieces together and connect that. So maybe these are all the reasons I might, I am the way I am where in the past, a few weeks ago, I would have used wording like, this is why I'm messed up. But like, I, I, I refrain from a little bit of the self-negative talk because it's just, uh, even if I say messed up, it, it didn't happen overnight. It happened over several years. And the notion of getting better and living a life that I want to live, it's going to take a few years um, or, or it's just going to take time. So I guess to answer the question in regards to towards later years of university, um, in my the, the the second degree I wanted to do took a little bit longer, but I and I had a very bad uh, overdose on uh, September sixteenth of twenty sixteen. But since then I've been sober. I've had it was it's been amazing. I've done a master's. I'm in a doctoral program. I um, I'm still getting help, but I also help other people out. I volunteer for a group called Soch Mental Health, which it looks out for. Uh, it tries to provide resources and programming for. Uh, People, um, it's directed towards people of South Asian heritage, but it's for every everyone and anyone. And uh, it's I'm I'm currently in the process of trying to start my uh, research in prisons. Um, I'm I'm an animal advocate. I'm a vegan. I'm I'm, I'm living the best life I, I I've lived in a long time. And uh, having said that, it's like I'm remembering all these things and remembering how I can't ever forget the different processes involved in in getting the help I got. And most importantly, I have learned how to set healthy boundaries with my family. I've, uh, mm. well, healthy for me, maybe not for them. <laughs> like I, uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> I was going to ask you where they, <laughs> where they play into this part of the story. So they don't know about any of these things. If they were to find out through this podcast, I'm completely fine. But it's one of those things where they're the kind of people that they come home from work and they watch Indian Idol and, and that's that notions, uh, talking about anything a little bit more deep, because I've opened up to them about depression. I haven't opened to them about the sexual mm-hmm. assault or the alcohol, but they kind of know that I'm just going to have to manage it on my own, that they can, I've told them explicitly, you guys cannot help me in this because your guys' way of trying to help makes it worse. I tell them, if you see me in the basement cuddling this dog beside me, this 100-pound golden noodle, he's my everything, that's my Kimba, just leave me alone and let me deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's like the reason I, I'm, I always walk outside with a That's pair of- powerful. I, I, I walk around, I never leave the house without earbuds. It's because God forbid if I ever have having some anxiousness or anxiety or anything like that, I can listen to music. I can call my partner. I can, it's like I, I have done all these small little things to be able to deal with really uh, volatile situations. And uh, they're, I would like to say, they're, they're, like they're recognizing that I'm doing what I'm supposed to. They- I don't think they give me credit for doing a doctoral because it's not like an actual medical doctor, but uh, um, they, I think they're understanding that 
they can't help. So when I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing, whether it's my meal prep for the week, whether it's refusing to consume any animal products, like whether like dairy or whatnot, whether it's um, random quirky things I might be doing around the house that they've come to kind of accept I'm grateful for. You set some really healthy boundaries for yourself. It sounds like, you know, this episode is focusing uh, on men. And to wrap up, if you can talk about the expectations that came from your family about being, some of the things you've touched on, being their son, not only yourself as a man, but being their son, Uh, being a man, being a provider, when are you going to find, you know, a girlfriend? Can you lay out some of that, the impact that might've had on your mental health, specifically from the perspective of being a man? Absolutely. Because like the amount of toxic masculinities and sexism that was kind of internalized throughout my whole life, uh, it'd, be, it'd be weird because I'm told that what a proper Hindu Punjabi man is, I'm supposed to be a vegetarian, religious, um, got a good job, find a wife, take care of your parents. Um, it was a little bit at odds with everyone around me where growing up vegetarian, it's like, oh, snap, you don't eat meat? What are you, soft? Oh, your family doesn't drink? What are you, soft? It's just all uh, dealing with that. And then realizing, wait a minute, I... I'm going to take it a step further. Like I'm as a vegan, I, I think the notion of, of, of any kind of masculine masculinity or any kind of identity being derived from eating something or, or any one particular behavior to me, it's nonsense to me. It's just, I am a man. It's, it's, it, it ends at that. I get to decide what that is. Nobody else. I'm able to have those conversations now where it's like, if you guys want me to be a part of your life, I mean, this can't be that where it's also the strength in finding and setting boundaries that appear as ultimatums as, I'm your son, but I will not tolerate certain things. I will not tolerate you making jokes about uh, things that are inappropriate, like my depression. I don't want to hear any racist crap around the house. I don't want to hear any sexist crap around the house that, it, regardless of how well-intentioned it might be, it has to stop at that at their generation. I refuse to let it be perpetuated by, by like my age range. Yeah. You've created some really healthy boundaries for yourself, some really healthy definitions for yourself. Uh, I want to congratulate you again before we wrap up on your five years sobriety. Thank you so much. And uh, wish you all the best and continued success on your journey. I just wanted to say uh, to, and to anyone who listens to this in the future, everyone participating, yeah, I might not know any of you, but I love all of you. Like we're, we're all in this together. We, we can't not be in this together. Everything we do affects each other and just everyone keep looking out for each other because it... Yeah, even if it's, we're facing difficulties, I mean, it's better to face them on when, when someone's beside you, right? So it's like, everyone keep right at it. We all got this. Absolutely. Varun, thank you. Cheers. Guys, faith and family. Those are two huge pressures if if you've got them. And that line between honoring your family and wanting to honor your parents and you know what they've done and, and how they're raising you, but also find your own truth, that in and of itself yeah. can be a struggle uh, and a pressure, and then layer on the expectations around faith and and what that means and how you're supposed to identify that. I mean, Varun has done some really hard work, and it sounds like for a long time he he did it on his own. Yeah, I thought it was incredible yeah. that he was able to find sobriety and stay sober for five years in what sounds like an environment with not a lot of support, and and mm-hmm. on all fronts, like the. Is he really a man? Is he really academically successful? I mean, to be in a PhD and to be feeling less than because it's not an MD, mm-hmm. um, that's a lot of pressure when you're trying to find sobriety. Like a lot of people uh, will tell you that, you know, they need super amounts of support around them. 
um, to get to that that sober place. So good on him. I'm so I'm so happy for him that he's got five years under his belt. And it it's just so um, I don't want to say comforting, but it's relatable to hear the struggle of children of immigrants trying to figure out what values do I have to adhere to? You know, am I going out and getting wasted with my Canadian friends or am I staying home and eating just vegetables with my my immigrant parents or who am I? And then finally landing on a place where this is me and no matter mm-hmm. where you are on the spectrum, this is me. And, you know, you, I mean, f- forming those boundaries with your your peers is one thing, but then with your parents who essentially mm-hmm. are in charge of you, that's a tough thing to do. I, I just, the way he articulated it, I just heard myself going, wow, 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 remarkable. And it, not many people can land in that place where they can make that choice for themselves. You know what I'm saying? And he, he was able to do that with work and help, but I'm glad he was able to It was to do also that. cool that he talked about the struggle of what it is to be a man. And that even though his family doesn't know, he spoke openly about the sexual assault because that is a spot, certainly in the indigenous community, it took men a long time before they would speak openly about what had happened to them at residential school for that very thing that somehow they think it shakes, you know, who they are as men. And in this changing society where there's so much talk about toxic masculinity uh, and, you know, understand I'm a hardcore feminist, but I grew up with a lot of men around me who kept me safe and made me feel loved who were, you know, rough and tough men. They were men that hunted and drove motorcycles and all of that. And sometimes I get defensive of how they're categorized because at the same time, you know, my father who died 51 years sober um, could braid my hair or mend my clothes for me or make me a cake. Um, So it is an interesting conversation. And if I was raising a son right now in 2021, I would find that very difficult to navigate those waters of what is it to be a man? All right, more to come. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere. You've heard some really intense stories today about how BIPOC men face very particular and varied barriers when it comes to accessing mental health. And now joining us to really give us some understanding and some context around these issues is counselor Khan Buba Delumbe. Welcome, Khan. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's start with some of the stigmas that men from BIPOC communities have to navigate, especially when they're trying to get help for their own mental health. The first one that comes to mind, I think, is the stigma that surrounds using or engaging with mental health altogether. So I think when you look at some of the stigma that exists, there's a stigma around mental health services. And I think that goes, um, I think that in part ties into just for a lot of BIPOC communities, there has traditionally been or needed to be somewhat of a healthy skepticism or suspiciousness around um, sometimes medical services, just because of the history of what it, of how we've been treated and the differences in terms of care that we've received. Beyond that, I think it's also I think it also plays into this notion or the way in which BIPOC communities conceive themselves. So for men in particular, and so um, with that, I think the BIPOC community as a whole, men or women, are often describe themselves or their being in Canada, their immigrant experience as being underlined by this notion of resilience. This, that our experience here is defined and colored, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, by 
the presence and the requirement almost of having to have this notion of grind or continuous or perpetual struggle, uh, difficulty, and how much that almost defines who we are as a people, our experience here. And I think because of this understanding of it, we almost trap ourselves in having to be resilient. And so with that, the expectation and anticipation that things will be and will continue to be difficult and understandably so. But then with that, um, this notion of the importance or almost the deification of resilience and from that, how it traps us into, we have to be strong. And this notion of strong being um, oftentimes unemotional or not having the privilege to express emotion uh, for being a pillar, for being a rock, for being this anchor, if you will, and, and not having cracks that to be strong means to be impervious or to, to be borderline perfect. And I think a lot of times those serve as barriers and create as the sense of stigma for those who fall outside of those. Being a man oftentimes in the BIPOC community is not synonymous or is not compatible with vulnerability. And so to move towards mental health services, I think in part requires an acknowledgement and an acceptance of being vulnerable and also appreciating the importance um, of being vulnerable, not just in, in general in our lives towards being healthy, but then also the requirement for that to engage in a process uh, in terms of mental health support. And I think because vulnerability is often seen as a privilege we don't have, going counterintuitive to this notion of being a rock or this pillar, or for men goes against this very, oftentimes, as you've heard from the interviews, this very rigid view of, of masculinity and what it is to be a man and constantly being checked if you fall outside of that. I think all of those kind of contribute to this to this stigmas that exist in terms of um, the BIPOC community, in particular men seeking mental health support. I'm, I'm glad you said that. You've also written an article where you mentioned how men live in a constant state of anxiety and how they don't even have mm. the privilege of expressing anger. To give a little more context about that, in Montreal, Black Canadians are stopped four to five times more often by police than white Canadians. I personally have often marveled that, you know, when I see on television or on social media, you know, white men getting angry and not really being penalized the same way as a black man is when they're angry. Almost, uh, you know, people get scared when black men get angry, but... When white men get angry, you know, it, it seems like it's like, oh, we're just going to let them blow up some steam. Can you talk about about how that affects the mental health of people who don't get that 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 release valve? For sure. Um, I mean, I've often told my my white friends that um, it's almost as if being stopped by the police is so common amongst BIPOC communities that it's just become this rite of passage, if you will. And and. Um, I've also talked and described to them about almost having to walk around with a healthy sense of paranoia, just being hyper aware. And I, and I think that the way that that plays on you is just this having to constantly have this hyper vigilance or this hyper awareness, always almost having to walk on the eggshells. Like I don't think people understand how draining or difficult or taxing it is to walk around knowing and feeling as though you're the single most vilified individual or entity in your world. That the notion of, of 
when, like, I mean, if, I mean, it, it, it plays across different groups, but we, we've heard this notion of the angry black. And then more to that is the angry black male. I try to explain to people that I don't actually have the, the privilege or the freedom to express my emotions or to be who I am in a moment. Because if, if I fall, if I express certain emotions that make me come off as unsafe or threatening, which I'm already deemed to be in many ways by society, that could be really detrimental. And that, and when I mean detrimental, whether that's social standing, whether that's my position in society, and whether that's having a criminal record, which research has shown will make it borderline impossible for me to ever have significant employment, um, um, all those things play into it. And what this causes is this suffocation and bottling the stifling of who we are. And it's as though we're walking around choking on all the emotion that the emotions that we've had to, to, to hold back in order to not, you know, part of the expression, shoot ourselves in the foot or, or get ourselves into a, into a worse situation. I even had an experience where I was walking home in my neighborhood with, with two white friends or my best friends to this day and we were stopped by the police and they were allowed to continue walking. And I was held for 10 minutes for questioning. And when I joined my friends, one of them said, you know, you always told me about this, but I never fully understood or believed it until I saw it with my own eyes. And I still can't make sense of it. And I just told them and smiled and been like, welcome to my world. Hmm. My father used to say, just because I'm paranoid does not mean they're not out to get me. Hmm. <laughs> Con, in a lot of BIPOC communities, men, one of the pillars associated with being a man is being mm. a provider for their families. But what if someone's not able to fulfill that expectation? Um, it, can, it, can, it can be really, 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 really difficult in that you get, as they say, you get checked, if you will. And so there's this rigid, cemented view of what a, of what a man can be or should be. And it is about being this this unrealistic paragon or pillar of strength. It is about um, being that provider, being being this all-encompassing figure, and it, it isn't realistic. Not everybody's built that way. Not everybody wants that life, and that's not how necessarily things or society are moving in today. And if you can't fulfill that, it it there's two avenues that, that stand out that I think are become really difficult in that it's almost as though you're expelled or excluded from the community that constitutes your people as a whole, and then the community that constitutes your masculinity or being that fellowship or brotherhood of man, if you will. And then it leaves you in a place of no man's land. Where do you exist mm -hmm. if your community doesn't recognize you fully because you're not living up to their measure of a man? Where do, where do you exist or go if amongst men, you're also not considered a being a part of that while still existing in the backdrop of a world or a society where it isn't our world. And so where does that leave an individual? Probably feeling alienated or lonely or hurt. Chances are really angry as well. And then how do you deal with that if you don't have relationships that allow you to open up or a community that's embracing you or accepting you, or you've been told your whole life that mental health isn't for us or not what we do. And that's just going to add to the alienation or the criticism if you move in that direction. This kind of 
furthering of the othering of you relative to the people or the groups that you want to or feel that you need to most belong to, if that makes sense. Oh, that was really profound, a no man's land, literally a no man's land. <laughs> Sorry for the puns. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. My, you know, my father was a Mi'kmaq man born in 1924 with all the, the, the luggage that came there and then came through World War II. When you're trying to get some of these older men to look at mental health, how, like, how do you approach that? How do you even start the conversation? It's, it's really tricky. And I think I would, I would preface my answer by saying there is no one set form or way of doing it. There is no right or wrong. Um, I think what's helpful, but also what makes it difficult is that I think this is where the power of examples and modeling and, and, yeah, examples of modeling become so important. It's, I think, for maybe for older men to see other men, yes, if they're men closer to their age, but men in general who they have a relationship with or identify with, who are modeling and showing that there can be a balance between this notion of the sense of what it is to be a man and how that can also incorporate and make space for what it is to be, I want to say vulnerable, but beyond that, I want to say what it is to be human because vulnerability is a human conditioner aspect. It's not specific to a gender or a sex or a community or, or, or any type of demographic or population. So I think that modeling is important, both in terms of, and it doesn't have to be formalized, just having relationships or knowing people that you respect or that you trust that show the importance of incorporating this in their lives, along with seeing our own in positions um, in terms of mental health professionals or providers. So understanding that this is something that we do. This is and can be a part of our community or culture. This can be authentic to who we are. This can be for us and by us. The problem being is that there's also a scarcity uh, of Black ment or BIPOC mental health professionals, in particular men. Uh, according to the research, Black youth are 47% less likely to seek mental health support compared to white youth. So those barriers seem to be pretty uh, apparent. Um, and you spoke about cultural bar barriers. Are there barriers in the system as well? Yeah. I mean, there's a few. Uh, let's see. There's cost mm -hmm. in that um, being able to afford an appropriate degree or frequency of or amount of mental health support isn't really, isn't necessarily realistic for most people based on what it costs and what average salaries or earnings are. I think as well, so that's one issue. I think that we, there's been a lot of advancements, but not all insurance providers recognize mental health supports for services. And so again, not making it affordable. And then when they do, there's this hierarchy where some are accepted or some modalities are accepted, but not others, even though there is such diversity in the styles and formats and types of mental health professionals that people are going to connect and respond with where we don't exist in, as a monolith. But I think those are some of the major um, some of the major issues along with uh, 
and needing to better understand that mental health is a universal thing and mental health can be and arguably should be a way of life for everybody in terms of its importance. Um, again, we, we can lose ourselves in this conversation, but those are some of the things that I think um, really come into play in terms of barriers between the BIPOC or the Black community, between um, men from those communities and mental health services. God, I'm so glad you started with costs because that is a huge barrier when you're talking about BIPOC communities right out of the gate. Um, in our final few minutes in this conversation, what's some advice you can leave listeners with, especially when it comes to men and their mental health? I, I do, obviously, I, I work in this profession, so I do fully believe in the importance and the benefits um, of mental health services and, and the work that mental health professionals do. But what I also think is important is that it can start at home. I think it's about whether it's a mental health professional or whether it's just an individual in your life, how the importance of building a relationship or relationships where you feel that you have the safety and freedom um, to bring the entirety of who you are and your experiences in that. Understanding that it's normal or human or to be expected that sharing a part of who you are is going to be difficult and may not, is going to be difficult and it's going to feel uneasy and it's going to be uncomfortable, but it's also really similar to a skill in that the more and more you practice it, the more and more authentic it becomes, the more natural it becomes, the easier it becomes. All experiences, all wounds need exposure, need to breathe in order for them to be able to heal. And I think I use that in mapping on the experience of whether it's going to see a mental health professional or just having an opportunity to have a dialogue or start a narrative that starts to unveil or, or expose some of the things that we've been through. Find some people in your community who you feel vulnerable enough to expose the wound to so you can start healing. Khan, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I loved so much of what he had to say. I love the idea about paranoid because that's always been a theme in my family about you know a Mi'kmaq without their paranoia intact is a dead Mi'kmaq so um it, there was just so much there about being vulnerable and finding someone who's going to understand your spot I know in the in the language of addiction you know it's it's a it's a long-held notion that only an addict can help an addict find their way through um, so sometimes when you're having these kinds of experiences, you got to find someone who, who walks in your moccasins, you know, who knows your life, your life experience. Very, very, very poignant. You know, hearing, hearing what we've already gotten to the point where we, we know that mental health is necessary for all humans. We have to talk about our mental health, but some of the things that require mental health conversations are the antithesis of what society says it means to be a man. So we need to wipe that stuff off the table so that we can have healthier people, healthier, healthier men, healthier relationships and healthier humans. So I, I just love hearing him um, articulate those from a, from a, a, a standpoint of practice, you know? And listening to Khan, you know, even share her personal experiences is something that we talk about in this podcast all the time is finding help that can reflect your experiences. So you're starting at a very different spot. Hearing him talk about what it was 
uh, like to be held back and be questions while his white friends continue to walk on. That's an experience that will connect directly with somebody who comes into his office, who comes to him for counseling. I want to thank Khan for uh, coming on today, as well as Shamar and Maroon. We always appreciate when people come share their stories. We know that to go back into that moment takes a lot of mental, physical, emotional energy. And we want to, we want to say we appreciate it. And we're so grateful that they do. Absolutely. And, and for you for taking time to listen today. And it's therapeutic for, for us to do this and to listen as well. But although it may be somewhat therapeutic, we want to remind you that the podcast is not a substitute for therapy. And please reach out to mental health professionals if you need help. For more information on that and what you heard on the show, head over to the podcast show notes or visit letstalk.bell.ca where you'll find links to resources, helpline numbers, and so much more. And remember, subscribe, share, so you know when a new episode drops. That's it for today. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of From Where We Stand, Conversations on Race and Mental Health.